You are listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church in Louise, Texas. Thank you for listening. Father God, thank you so much that the battle belongs to you. Um, that the battles that we have to fight, though, though we get to join them, we know that you are yours is a victory. And Lord, as we enter into this time to hear your word preached, we pray that you would touch our hearts, our minds, and our souls, that you would illuminate your scriptures, open them up to what it is that you have to say to us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now stand up for the sermon. I'm just kidding. Go ahead, sit down. <laughs> I have a question. Have you guys, do y'all know about the song or the TV show Veggie Tales? Anybody remember Veggie Tales? No? Veggie Tales? All right. Well, if you don't know about Veggie Tales, Veggie Tales was a cartoon that took biblical stories, themes, and ideas and made them accessible to children. Uh, one of the first Veggie Tales episodes I remember seeing, I was, old, I was a little older, uh, I was in seventh grade or so when I saw it, but it was called Larry Boy and the Fib from Outer Space. Larry Boy and the Fib from Outer Space, and in this Larry Boy, he's a superhero, um, he, there was a Fib from Outer Space, an alien that came down to the Earth. And every time that somebody told a lie, specifically this kid was Junior Asparagus, every time Junior Asparagus would tell a lie, this Fib would grow bigger and bigger. It would grow so big that he eventually became too big and powerful to control. And it wasn't until the truth was told that the fib began to shrink, that the fib began to lose its power. Truth had a hold over a lie. I mean, this is a silly illustration, but, but it carries with it an important truth. Have you ever thought about how repulsive lies are to God? How the God that we serve is a God of truth, and that when we lie, if we lie, then we are making a mockery of him. In fact, telling a lie breaks one of the big ten commandments. In Exodus 20, 16, it says that you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. God hates lying. And as God's people, we should be telling the truth at all times and in all ways. So why do people tell lies? They either want to advance their own agenda or they want to seem more important or more powerful or more influential. They want to protect themselves from the consequences of a bad decision or a consequence of making a bad choice. But we serve a God who cared so much about sharing the truth with us that he left his throne, he put on flesh, he lived a perfect life, he suffered greatly, and he gave his life and died for our sins so that we could know the truth about him. And then on the third day, he rose again, verifying that everything that he said and everything that he taught and how he lived was the truth. So how committed to the truth are you? Sometimes standing for the truth is going to cost you greatly. Just because it'll be hard doesn't mean that we should avoid telling the truth. After all, telling the truth cost Jesus his life. Today we're going to read about some Jewish leaders that would rather lie to get what they want than stand in the truth. But Paul is going to stand firm. 
Paul is going to stand up. Paul is going to tell the truth. It would have been easy for Paul to recant, but he stands up for the truth, ready to endure whatever will happen because truth doesn't fear a challenge. Let's pray. Father God, again, we come before you. We come before you and we ask that you would show us what it is you would have for us to understand in your scriptures this morning, Lord. We come before you worshiping you because you are a God of truth who became put on flesh to become a sacrifice for us, to reveal to us the truth about who you are. And we thank you for the example that we get about the cost of truth, but the, the reality that it's important to stand up for it in not just Jesus' life, but in Paul's life as well. Lord, I pray again that you would just illuminate what you have to say to us in your scriptures this morning. Miss in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, um, open up to Acts chapter 23. We're going to be in verses 12 through the end of chapter 24. So we've got a lot of ground to cover, but it's all right. I'll make it um, not long, I guess. <laughs> all right. Well, don't amen too quickly. All right. Um, I love you, Clint. Um, all right, Acts chapter 23, verse 12, it says this, When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priest and the elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune and bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. We are re- and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. All right, so there's a conspiracy. This is a conspiracy theory. Remember that Paul had just stand, stood before the Sanhedrin, and they caused them to go into mass confusion. They wanted to convict him of something that he didn't do. And the only reason that he stood before them and he was called before them is because he believed in the resurrection of Jesus which caused these men, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees, to turn against each other and enter into a violent brawl. And through the uproar, Paul was saved by the tribune, the Roman general, Claudius Lysias. And he was visited by Jesus, and Jesus told him in, in Acts chapter 23, verse 11, he said this, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. The Jews were not happy that they could not get their hands on Paul. So they want to kill him because every time they try to get to him, they try to accuse him of something, he ends up getting escaping in some way or fashion, usually by the hands of the Roman general. So they're going to make one last-ditch effort to kill him. So more than 40 people gather together, and they make an oath. They, they plot to kill Paul, and they make an oath. They're so committed to it that they say, I'm not going to eat nor drink until this man is dead. How much do you have to hate yourself or hate somebody else to withhold food and drink from yourself until they are dead? I know people who can't go an hour or two. Stop smiling, Corey. You know I'm talking about you. That can't go an hour or two without eating lest they want to kill somebody. So this hunger is going to ravage them. And oaths were a big deal at this time. In fact, they were so prevalent that Jesus even warned against it. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 33 through 37, he says this, Again, you have heard it said of those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. 
But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your, your head, for you cannot make one hair grow black or white. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You see, oaths of this nature were usually made in the heat of the moment as rash commitments to God. And they sought to gain God's approval by the severity of the oath. Yet God condemned these oaths himself. These oaths never go well. The results weren't ever as they were intended to be. So why is making an oath like this condemned by Jesus? Because it puts you in the place of God. It also means that you are trying to manipulate God for your own means. But nevertheless, these guys have a plan. Their plan was to ask the Roman general to bring Paul back and they would, so that he could state his case before them. But on the way back, they were going to jump him and they were going to kill him. The members of the Sanhedrin, these were experts in the law. They tried to uphold the law. They taught the law. They knew the law. And they were ready and willing to break the law of God to kill Paul. And I mean, they weren't just breaking a little law. This, again, is one of the big ten, right? Don't kill somebody. Do not murder. Their pride and their flesh were blinding them to the fact that they were breaking God's law. It didn't matter what God had said. They wanted Paul dead. I don't care what you say, God. I want him dead. And it didn't look like anything would stop them. But let's not forget that God has a purpose and a plan for Paul, that he's going to stand in Rome before the Caesar. Paul has already been reassured by Jesus just a couple of verses later, earlier that this is going to be happening. So God's hand is going to be at work. God's providence, as we have seen before, plays a huge role in the life of Paul. And we are going to see that again today. And even though the name of God isn't mentioned in this text of Scripture, we see him at work. I heard one preacher put it this way. Never mistake the lack of the miraculous for the inactivity of God. God's hand is always at work. God's hand is always at work. God is going to providentially protect Paul from the plot of the Jews. Just as he has protected him up to this point. Now, how is God going to protect him? Let's find out. Acts chapter 23, verse 16 through 24, he says this. Now the, sons of Paul's sister, now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune. Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand, and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush, who, would have, bound, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting your consent." So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get two hundred, get ready, two hundred soldiers with seventy horsemen and two hundred spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of this night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. So we see some providential protection here. 
The first person that God uses to protect Paul is his nephew. This is the only passage in Scripture that we have that reveals anything about Paul's family. He had a sister and he had a nephew. That's all we know. Paul's nephew overhears the plot to murder his uncle. So he goes and tells his uncle about the plot against him. See, Paul still had some freedom even though he was under arrest. It was more like a house arrest. He wasn't just a regular prisoner. They were protecting him. So they came and they went. People came and went and visited him as they wanted to. Paul's nephew relays this new message to Paul, and Paul beckons the centurion, and he says, hey, come here, I've got something to show you. I've got something to tell you. This guy needs to go see the tribune. This kid needs to go see the tribune. Let's, let's talk about his nephew for just a second. The same word young man that is used here is used at, um, in relation to Eutychus back in Acts chapter 20. So Eutychus, we remember, was somewhere between the ages of 8 and 14. So this guy was, this kid, this young man was probably about the same age. So the fact that the chief priest and the elders didn't think the boy that was a threat to the plot, so he was around when they were plotting against him, so that indicates that he was probably younger. So he's probably Levi's age or so. He was too young to understand, they thought he was too young to understand the weight of what was happening. But it's absolutely amazing what children hear and what they understand when we think that they aren't paying attention. In fact, when they aren't paying attention is usually when they pick up the most, right? And so here's some sound advice for you guys who have young children, or if you're going to have children in the future. When you think it's safe to speak around the child, don't. Don't say anything around them. Their little ears have an uncanny ability to ignore all that they are supposed to hear and latch on to the things that they're not supposed to hear. It's amazing. And that's what happens here. His age is further clarified by the fact that the centurion takes him by the hand, or the the commander takes him by the hand. Can you imagine him walking a 14-year-old boy around by the hand, pulling him around? No, it's probably a young, young boy. But this God uses this young man to save his uncle. It's also an act of God that this young boy was able to speak to the Roman commander. Obviously, the Roman commander had a lot of respect for Paul, so if Paul sends him, then he's going to listen to him. But the Jewish leaders knew that this ploy and this plot to conspire against and to kill Paul would have worked if it wasn't for this pesky child. The Roman commander would have answered their call. He would have sent Paul to them because he still doesn't know what's going on. He still has no idea why Paul is being chased by the Jewish people, right? He tried to examine them by flogging last week, and he still doesn't know exactly what's happening. So he he would have agreed to have this meeting if it would not have been because of the revelation of this child. But instead of leading Paul to his death, this Roman commander ushers him out of town for his safety. He calls two centurions to come to him, and those two centurions he gathers together 200 soldiers, 200 spearmen, and 70 horsemen to escort Paul away from Jerusalem. 470 soldiers total to escort this one guy out. Those who stood against Paul, there were only 40 of them. But the Roman commander took their plot so seriously that he protected them by nearly 500 people. God will protect his people while he is using them by any means necessary, whether it be a young boy or the military. There's nothing outside of his realm or scope of influence, nothing outside of his realm or scope of providence. God will use the weak or he may use the strong but he will not be thwarted. He will not be shaken. 
He will not be overwhelmed or undermined because he is always working for his plans and for his purposes. Now, Paul's escort was not just going to get him out of town, but he was going to deliver him over to a higher authority. The Roman commander, finally, we find his name. We've heard about him for a couple of chapters, but we finally hear his name, and his name is Claudius Lysias. And he writes a letter to the governor, and it reads like this in verses 25 through 35. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon, him, upon them with the soldiers and rescued him. Having learned that, the, that he was a Roman citizen and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about, that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that they, there would be a plot against this man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him out by night to Antiparis, Partus. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go with him. And they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor. They presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Sicilia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. So Claudius, when he writes his letter, he's not exactly truthful, right? He, he wants to save face. So he just says, oh, I saw this guy and he was arrested or he was under control or going to be beaten by these guys. So I'm going to take him and I'm going to save him. He doesn't tell him about the potential flogging. He doesn't tell him that he arrested him. He just tells him that he's in protective custody. So Claudius is trying to paint himself in the best light possible. He does state that he found Paul to be guiltless. So he sends Paul to Felix, to a higher court. Paul is then present before Felix, and he makes Felix wants to make sure that this guy is under his jurisdiction. See, he, Felix didn't have command over all of the empire. He only had jurisdiction over some of it, so he had to make sure that, that Paul was from an area that he had jurisdiction over, jurisdiction over. But the hearing was going to have to wait. So after you verify that Paul was part of, the, uh, part of his jurisdiction, he's like, we're going to have to wait until your accusers arrive. So Paul was placed in protective custody until the hearing could happen. And in 24, verses 1, we read this. After five days, it took five days for the high priest Ananias to come down with his elders and his spokesman, one Tertullius. And they laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoyed much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and in everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. Do not detain, but do, to not detain you further, I beg your kindness to hear us briefly. So they're standing before Felix, and this guy is a very flattering guy to Turles. He's, he's He's super flattering. The high priest Ananias and some of the Sanhedrin get there after five days, and they bring with them this guy. He's a lawyer. We're not sure if he was part of the Sanhedrin. We're not sure if he was even Jewish, but they brought him with them to state the case against Paul in front of the people, or in front of Felix. Now, Tertullus is a smart and manipulative, manipulative lawyer. And I want to say real quick, not all lawyers are like this. But when you think about swarmy lawyers... This guy seems to be that guy, right? This is kind of like the prototypical lawyer that we think about. 
The first thing that we read is that he, he is flattering and lying to Felix about Felix's station. Flattery is not represented well in the scriptures. There's no need to say something that isn't true in order to gain approval. After all, flattery is lying. Yet Tertullus has no problem with using flattery when using or when addressing Felix. And you may be asking, Josh, how are these words about Felix false? We have to understand a little bit about Felix to kind of grasp what's happening. Felix was a politician's politician. And he used his reign and he was guided by what would be called ruthless pragmatism. 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 Oh my goodness. He thought that if something would work, then he would use it. He would use it, no matter how violent, murderous, or ruthless it was. So he wasn't kind, he wasn't peaceful, and he wasn't good. Felix was born a slave, but eventually he, he was released and he was appointed to rule. And in order to stay in good standing with the Roman, with Rome, anytime that there was a hint at an uprising, he would violently crush it. He would use all of his power to crush the uprising so that he could keep the peace in Rome. Felix was all about keeping his power and influence regardless of the cost. Even though he tried to squish, squash the uprisings, they would continue like whack-a-mole. You would squash one and then when another one would pop up. That's kind of what would happen. There were just, there were just uh, these uprisings all over the place. So there was no peace in the ruling area of Felix. He wasn't a high-minded ruler either with the understanding of a king. Rather, he was a tyrant that used his influence to rule over the people that he had. In fact, one historian, Tacitus, writes this. He says, Felix practiced every kind of cruelty, cruelty and lust, wielding the power of a king with the instincts of a slave. With that being the case, it seemed like Paul stood no chance at escaping a guilty verdict. Tertullus also appealed to the providence and power of Felix, equating him with God. He's stroking this guy's ego to gain favor, claiming his rulership as power, powerful and peaceful. So the lawyer presents the case against Paul. Keep in mind, first the elders wanted to kill Paul, potentially breaking one of the Ten Commandments. Yet, yeah, do not murder. Now they're breaking the other commandment against bearing false witness. They are trading the truth for a lie. They are liars. And they bring up three charges against Paul. In verses 5 through 9, we read about him. For we have found this man, so this is the lawyer speaking, for we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sects of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple but was seized. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming all the, these things were so. So the three charges against him is that Paul caused riots, that he was a ringleader for the, Nazarene, the sect of the Nazarenes, and that he profaned the temple. And then on top of all this, he is a plague or a, a pest, that no matter what they do, they can't get rid of him. Kind of like the Rona. You just can't get rid of him. He continually stirs up disorder and subverts the law. Here's why this is important, because during the first century, there were always these types of power struggles. There were people who would come up and they would say that they're a political messiah, that they're here to overthrow the government. Remember, Claudius, the Roman commander, thought that Paul was the Egyptian who led up one of these uprisings before. 
And this dis- disturbed what was called the Pax Romana. And this is the Peace of Rome. If you've studied it in high, in, in high school in, in history, you know about the Peace of Rome, which was the cornerstone of, one, of the Roman Empire. The Romans loved the law. They loved order. They loved peace, and they wanted to keep it at all costs. So they would not hesitate to squash out any rabble-rouser who came against them. So riots and disorder were big no-nos in the Roman Empire. They also called Paul a ringleader of the Nazarenes. This is the only time that we see this phrase the, uh, of the sect of the Nazarenes used for Jesus' followers. Uh, this, meant, this was meant to convince Felix that this movement was separate from Judaism and that it was a threat to peace again. The lawyer then it called him a ringleader, which carries with it its own connotation, right? He's not just a leader, he's a ringleader, like right? It has got those mob vibes, right? That he's a troublemaker. That he, so the lawyer is using words to evoke emotion, fear, and anger in Felix. The case against Paul was stated to make him seem like a worse guy than he actually was, and that he was a big threat to the empire. Now, they talked about the defiling of the temple because if Felix found him not guilty of those other things, then what he would do is he would turn them over, turn Paul over to the Jewish leaders if he had, in fact, defiled the temple. So if he had defiled the temple, then they would turn him over to the Jewish leaders and they would have their way with him. They would go ahead and kill him because they were in charge of enforcing their holy law and protecting their holy ground. Thankfully, this is a courtroom. And so Paul's able to give a chance, right? He's given a chance to combat and disprove the lies with the truth. And so in Acts 24, verse 10 through 13, he begins his defense. It says this, And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for, a many, for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. So Paul stands on truthful defense. Paul begins his defense by proving that he had no opportunity to stir up any kind of riot or trouble in Jerusalem. He'd only been there for 12 days. He couldn't get people moving that that quickly. So he stood before Felix and he said, I didn't do this. This is... I had hardly enough time to do anything in Jerusalem. Neither did any of these men actually see him, witness him, participate in any uprisings or riots. Now, this is a big deal because in Jewish law, you had to have two, at least two, independent lines of testimony, of actually eyewitness testimony to condemn somebody. And nobody there had actually seen Paul do anything. So they are, again, lying about Paul. They are lying about what he did. And on top of that, there are riots in Jerusalem. There are riots that happen, but who is the one who does the rioting? The people against Paul, the people against Jesus, the people against the way. So the riot in the temple courtyard, which is where all of this stems from, was instigated by the false accusation that Paul had brought a Gentile into the temple. And then there was a riot. And Paul stands before Felix completely innocent. Yet those who accuse him are guilty, but not under any scrutiny. Paul then makes another defense. He says this in verse 14, But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, 
I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men, men themselves accept, accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Paul simply says that, yes, I am a follower of the way. These guys call it a sect, but I'm a follower of the way. I'm a follower of Jesus. I believe in the same God. I believe in the same scriptures, and I have the same hope as these guys. But yes, I do follow the way. This is what the earlier, remember the way is what the earlier Christians called themselves. Paul assures both Felix and the elders that he had not abandoned the faith of his youth. Rather, he has discovered the truth and the fulfillment of the faith that they had in Jesus Christ. That God has truly and ultimately revealed himself in the person and the work and the sacrifice of Jesus. That in his life, his death, his burial, that, that there is, is a truth in him. But the real point of contention is not Jesus' life. It's not Jesus' death. It's not Jesus' burial. It's his resurrection. Remember, there were two sects in the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees believed in a resurrection, but the Sadducees didn't. And so when they hear about a resurrection, they start to get angry. And in all actuality, this is a battle that we still fight today. To the people outside of Christianity, they, they, the resurrection sounds ludicrous to them. The fact that a guy rose from the dead sounds ridiculous to them. They can come to grips with Jesus, the good moral teacher. They can understand Jesus maybe as a historical figure. But when it comes to Jesus as God, when it comes to Jesus as the resurrected one, that's where there are issues. But as followers of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus is essential for our faith. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 14, he says this, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. The resurrection is the hinge point, and it is what separates followers of Jesus from all other faith. It is what separates followers of Jesus from all other belief system. And why is this important? Because if Jesus rose from the dead, then we can trust what he said. We can trust what he taught, and we can trust that he is who he claimed to be. We can also have hope that one day he will raise us up to spend eternity with him. But Jesus isn't just going to raise the righteous, but he's also going to raise the unrighteous. And they're going to stand in judgment as well. All are going to stand before God one day, and they will be judged according to what they did with their knowledge of Jesus. Did they accept Jesus, or did they reject Jesus? Did they trust Jesus, or did they rebel against Jesus? You won't be saved from judgment because of your parents' faith. You won't be saved from judgment because you followed your moral compass. You won't be saved from judgment because you were a good person. You won't be saved from judgment because you sit, you're sitting in these chairs today. You will only be saved from judgment if you trust in Jesus. Because it's all about Jesus. This means that each person in this room, and in this town, and in this community, and in this world, are going to have to give account, an account for what they did with what they knew 
about Jesus. So what have you done? Have you accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior? Do you trust or do you reject the claims of Jesus? Do you follow Jesus or do you chase your own desires? Examine yourself. And I pray that you accept and trust in the truth of who Jesus is. We also see in this passage that Paul claims to be an upstanding citizen and a servant of God. He stands and has a clear conscience before both God and man. He keeps God's commandments and adheres to the law of the land, but he still needs to continue to defend himself. Now, after several years in verse 17, he says this, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without a crowd, any crowd or tumult. But some Jews of from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation should they have anything against me, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing, that I cried out when, while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Paul wants Felix to know that he came back to Jerusalem simply to deliver a gift to the church in Jerusalem. He was following the Jewish law by cleansing himself in the temple, and that's when he was attacked. When these Jewish people from Asia falsely claimed that he had brought a Gentile into the temple. The reality is, is that these Jewish elders have nothing to prove, have no way to prove their case against Paul. They simply don't like the message that he is preaching. They simply don't like the fact that others are turning to Jesus. They hate the fact that he holds fast to the truth of the resurrection. They, that he had an experience with Jesus that changed his life. That he was not one of them anymore, but he belonged to Jesus. It's simply a matter of differing theology that Paul stands before Felix. There's so much hate and so much vitriol against Paul from these Jewish elders that they painstakingly attack and wish to rid themselves of him. But Paul stands blameless. Paul stands firm. Paul stands on the truth because truth doesn't fear a challenge. But even when standing in the truth, things don't always work out the way that we want. And they don't work out for Paul. In verses 22 through 27, we read this. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he would be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and coming judge, in the coming judgment. Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given, given him by Paul. So he sent him for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Paul never got a verdict. See, Felix knew about the followers of Jesus. 
Not just a cursory knowledge, but an accurate one. So he knew the charges against Paul were unsubstantiated. But Felix doesn't rule on Paul's case. There's no justice. Paul is in prison for two more years because Felix doesn't want to upset the Jews. He wants to gain favor with the Jews. So he leaves Paul in prison. One reason that Felix may have kept Paul in prison was because he hoped that Paul would give him some money, that he would be bribed out to get out. You see, bribes were illegal, but they didn't mean that it didn't happen. So Paul is held captive, but God still uses Paul while he is here. Paul has some privileges while he's in chains. He still has people who come and visit him. He has visitors. He's able to have his needs met. But most of all, he's able to speak boldly about Jesus. Felix's wife, Drusilla, prods them to go talk to Paul. Here's a few things that you need to know. Felix, again, is not a good man. He has issues with righteousness, self-control, and will face the judgment of God. Here's a deal with his wife, Drusilla. This is actually his third wife. She was renowned for her beauty around the world, and he actually stole her from another guy that she was married to. And Drusilla herself has a rich history. Her grandfather was Herod the Great. That's the Herod that killed the babies when Jesus was born. Her uncle was Herod, who, the one who beheaded John the Baptist. Her father was Herod, the one that we read about in Acts chapter 12, who had an ego so big that it ended up, God ended up striking him down. So she comes from a rich history of dealing with the followers of Jesus. Anyway, while Paul is in chains, he has the opportunity to preach and minister to both Felix and Drusilla. Luke tells us that Paul spoke and taught three specific things. And these things were good for Drusilla and for Felix, but they're also good for everybody. He spoke about righteousness. Felix and Drusilla did not have a right standing with God. They were sinners who stand to face the wrath of God unless they repent of their sin and turn and trust in Jesus. He spoke about self-control, that Felix had no self-control. After all, he did steal his wife from somebody else, and he was rash in his doing things, right? He did whatever made him most comfortable, whatever made him feel most loved and alive. alive. And third, Paul also spoke about the judgment that is to come. If Felix and Drusilla do not turn their life back to, or turn their life to Jesus, and they don't find their righteousness in Christ, and they don't demonstrate that through self-control, then they will be judged accordingly. They will experience the full wrath of God. We don't know if Felix and Drusilla turned their lives over to Jesus or listened to the message that Paul presented, but we do know that they heard it, that they had conversed with Paul, that they had conversations with him. So here's the deal. If you're a follower of Jesus, you need to stand up for the truth, no matter what it's going to cost you. Speaking the truth does not always lead to happy and, and fun results. But standing for Jesus means that you are standing for what is right, what is good, what is holy. You have a calling and a privilege as a follower of Jesus to share the truth with other people. It's not going to be easy. It's probably going to be awkward. It's going to be uncomfortable. It'll take some time, but you need to be bold. You may lose friends. You may lose relationships, but at least you obeyed Jesus. And I want you to know that if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you have not given your life over to him, you have a choice to make. You have a choice to make that you can either reject him 
or you can embrace him. You can either trust him or rebel against him. But there is a day of reckoning coming where we will all stand before Jesus and give an account for what we did with him. And I'm not saying this because I want to scare you. I don't want to scare you into belief. I want, I'm saying this because I love you. And I want you to know that there's going to be a day where we all stand before God. We give an account for what we did with the name of Jesus. Whether, whether you like it or not, you either stand for Jesus or you stand against him. You're either a child of the light or you're a child of the darkness. You're either a child of God or you're an enemy of God. You will either spend eternity with him or eternity separated from him. If you want to love and follow Jesus, he is, his arms are open to you. He is calling out to you. He is wanting you to respond to him. You are a sinner and an enemy of God, but all it takes is trusting in Jesus, following after Jesus, and loving him to no longer be his enemy but to be his friend. I want you to think about that. What are you going to do with Jesus? We're going to enter, enter into a time of reflection, some songs of celebration. And as we go into this time, I want you to be thinking about, what, do I, what did I do with Jesus? Do I trust Jesus or do I reject him? Do I think he's just kind of okay or do I absolutely love him? What are we doing with Jesus? Let's pray. Thanks for listening. To find out more information about our church and ministries, visit fbclouise.com.